MasterCard recently removed the word MasterCard from their logo, leaving in its place only the two overlapping spheres. Now, MasterCard isn't the first of the big brands to do this. This is actually a growing trend among big brands to remove lettering and words from their logos in their brand touch points. Why are they doing this and why and what can we as we develop our own brands, learn from this. We'll go ahead and dive into this, as well as a website sidebar. What is it? Should you have one? Should it be on the left? Should it be on the right? And what should be on it? All this today and more on the Rightly Design Show. No man who cares about originality will ever be original. It's the man who's only thinking about doing a good job or telling the truth who becomes really original and doesn't notice it. You're listening to the fusion of form and function. This is The Rightly Designed Show. Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Thomas and this is The Rightly Designed Show. It seems that we're starting to enter in what some are calling the age of the wordless logo. And I mentioned the MasterCard logo at the top of the show, and they seem to be one of many different big brands that are uh, tending to go this direction. And a lot of people are saying that it's in an effort to do what's being called or referred to as de-branding. The distrust in uh, consumers in the United States right now is at an all-time high when it comes to big corporate brands. The bottom line is people just do not buy into the old modes of corporate advertising of the ways that they used to. Uh, so what you're seeing taking place is a lot, of, a lot of big corporations trying to combat this in a number of different ways. And one of the ways that's come out has been through removing the words and going with just a more simplistic, relatable design. You see this in things like Just Do It back in 1995, I think is what it was, uh, when uh, Nike introduced their famous tagline. You see uh, taglines like, I'm loving it from McDonald's. Things that don't necessarily have anything to do with the the product that they're selling itself, but just a, a effort to be more friendly and to come across less salesy, as we've seen, uh, you know, more prominent in a lot of advertising and marketing efforts in the past. So there's a really interesting article over in The Atlantic that dives into this exact topic, and specifically about the effort to begin removing words from logos and, and this trend in general. So I'm just going to go ahead and read just a short portion of it. It says, MasterCard unveiled its new logo earlier this summer. And as far as rebrandings go, the tweaks are subtle. The company kept kept its overlapping red and yellow balls intact and moved its name, which was previously front and center, to beneath the balls while making the text lowercase. With increasing frequency, MasterCard said, it would do away with using its name in the logo entirely. The focus would be more on the symbols than the words. MasterCard's move reflects a wider shift among some of the most widely recognized global brands to de-emphasize the text in their logos or removing it altogether. Nike was among the first brands to do this in 1995 when its swoosh began to appear with the words, just do it, and then without any words at all. Apple, McDonald's, and other brands followed a similar trajectory gravitating toward entirely textless symbols after a period of transitioning with logos that had taglines like Think Different or I'm Loving It. 
This shift is in accordance with a streamlined approach to design, as well as, a certain, as well as certain features of the modern economy. Symbols work better than long names on computer screens and apps, and they, f- they allow for greater flexibility if a company wants to dabble in multiple industries at once. For example, names like Starbucks Coffee and MasterCard are tied to specific products in the way that they are, their symbols are not which can be a disadvantage at a time when it's perfectly plausible for a company that makes phones to make cars too. Additionally, visual cues can travel across borders more easily because they eliminate the need for translation. But perhaps the most powerful impetus for these slimmed down logos is that it's increasingly more difficult to reach buyers when so many of them are skeptical of big corporations. A recent survey by the public relations firm Cohen & Wolf found that four-fifths of global consumers consider brands neither open nor honest. It says, quote, consumers are jaded about the advertising in a way they weren't several decades ago, says Adam Alter, an associate uh, professor of marketing at New York University's Stern uh, School of Business via email. It's, quote, harder to appeal to them than it used to be, and they tend to see through overt marketing pitches. That has in turn led to a new arsenal of branding tactics. Companies have to learn, uh, it says companies have to, have had to learn subtlety, Alter says. So it goes on and it says uh, the next portion dives into and, you know, among uh, that arsenal is what's called debranding or decorporatizing, a strategy based on paring down that can only be deployed by the most identifiable brands. So all of this to say and to the reason for bringing this up and why it's so important is that it's it's showing that there's a, a growing distrust that is taking place among brands, a lot of top brands. And, up, and across corporations in general. What you can see, you can actually see this reflected as well in a lot of different, uh, along, uh, in a lot of different uh, blogging spheres as well. So people who are just promoting their personal brand, you'll see that their personal brand is front and center. You see this with like Michael Hyatt or Jeff Goins or Pat Flynn, or a lot of these people who are really influential in their market are making their brands built upon themselves, much more personal, a lot less corporate, a lot less, you know, advertisee in its feeling. So what you're seeing is the same type of thing taking place among these big corporate brands. While they don't necessarily have a person at the forefront, what they're trying to do is steer away from that more corporate feel and allow themselves a greater flexibility while they're doing it. So then the next question, you know, to beg is, so does that mean I should just remove the words from my logo? Now, for big corporations, this makes a lot of sense because just about everybody would be able to recognize the golden arches or the swoosh, the Nike swoosh, or even the MasterCard symbol. All of these have been uh, well-recognized brands across their industries for years. So when it comes to a smaller brand, you know, maybe, maybe uh, questioning, okay, so should I just remove the text from my logo or go that direction? And the answer is maybe. And the answer is maybe because it depends upon how well your brand has built up has been built up to this point. If, for example, you're going to be starting something new, I wouldn't recommend going for an icon only approach because you have to start by identifying for people what you do. For example, I've built a I've, I've mentioned it in previous episodes before, but I've, I've built a brand called Notable Themes, and that's Uh, a theme marketplace that sells niche-specific WordPress themes. 
So I've started out with, you know, the it's not really a tagline, uh, but in the actual description and the main header of the website, it mentions that WordPress themes are, you know, what Notable Themes is all about. It's not necessarily a tagline, but it says themes that do more than just look pretty. Now, a lot of big corporate brands are getting away from this approach, as I've touched on, uh, for a wide variety of different reasons. So MasterCard wouldn't necessarily come out with a, a brand slogan that says, you know, the best credit card that you can have, you know, because that most people already know what MasterCard is. When you're building a new brand, people don't necessarily know what it is. So it's important to do your branding in such a way as to take the first step of making sure that people understand who you are and what you do. Now, over time, if you start becoming recognizable with a specific icon and a specific name and what you do, then you can, you can possibly start the process of phasing out the words. So that's why, I mean, there's a lot, again, there's a lot that, you know, you can take away from, you know, the very concept of debranding. And I do recommend that you check out this article. It's got a lot of, uh, a lot of more uh, very interesting points that they bring into the discussion as well. And as always, I'll leave a link to this in the show notes, um, which is today is just going to be rightlydesignedshow.com slash 27. But again, if you are going to be starting your own new brand, I wouldn't start where these, uh, where these big brands are going today. First, you want to nail down what it is that you do, and you want the first, the first step in building a good brand is becoming synonymous with what you do. So, you know, you want your brand, you want your logo, you want uh, everything that surrounds that brand and your brand identity to communicate what you do. And from there, you can begin the process of simplification so that by the time you're done, in the example of MasterCard, you just have two overlapping spheres. No words are acquired. McDonald's, you just have the golden arches, um, and so on and so forth with all the different brands. So when it comes to branding, it is very much a progressive, you know, it's, a, it's stages when it comes to building your brand. You want to start out with clarity. You want to make it extremely clear what you do, what your brand stands for, and then simplify that over time. So I hope you find that uh, helpful. And again, I do recommend you check out that article. There's a lot of really interesting points throughout it. They've uh, What they've got broken down here as well is the progression of these different logos over time. So like 1968 was in the MasterCard you know, logo first debuted. And it actually used to say uh, Master Charge, which is actually what it used to be called. So Master Charge, the international card, uh, or I'm sorry, the inner bank card. So it said, you know, it's very clear that this is a credit card. Um, the original McDonald's is like an illustration. So it says McDonald's coast to coast and you see the progression there. Same thing with the Starbucks logo. They had their icon that they've always been known for. And you see that kind of transition over time to the point where there's now no words at all. So same with Shell. Uh, if you're familiar with Shell gas, um, they've done the same thing where they started out with a word that was embedded within the actual Shell iconography. And then they've just over time slowly gotten rid of the word as well. So again, lots of different interesting, uh, a lot of a lot of different interesting examples to take a look at, and a lot to take away from that when it comes to building our own brands and specifically logo designs and how that ties in with everything. So today's main topic that I wanted to touch on today was a WordPress or I'm sorry, a website sidebar and how we can incorporate that or whether we should incorporate that into our website. 
But before I go on to that, I wanted to take a quick moment to mention the sponsor of this episode, and that is FreshBooks. Now, if you've never used FreshBooks before, I highly recommend you check them out. I've actually been using them for several years now for all of my accounting needs. Now, FreshBooks is actually on the verge of doing a total redesign of the user interface. And I've already liked the design of FreshBooks for a lot of different reasons. They've made it very easy for me to do time tracking, invoicing, uh, you can do estimates, and they've got tons of different reporting features, and they make it really, really easy for people to pay you. So it just makes it really easy, not only for you to be able to manage and track all your expenses and finances within your own business, but also to make that really easy for people to interact with you and to pay and to even leave you reviews and things like that. So that's why I was really excited to see that they've done a whole re- uh, a whole like revamp, uh, revamped web app, and so it's all extremely organized. Uh, they've got charts and everything, so you can see everything at a glance, and it makes it that much faster and easier to navigate. So again, I do highly recommend you check it out. FreshBooks is offering the listeners of the Rightly Designed Show a 30-day free trial. So again, this is a no-risk 30-day free trial. You can jump in there, try it out. If it's not for you, no big deal, but I think you... You'd be more than impressed with all the features that they have in there. So just go to gofreshbooks.com slash rightly designed. That's gofreshbooks.com slash rightly designed and enter rightly designed in the how did you hear about us section. Design, branding, marketing, WordPress, helping you build a better brand through the fusion of form and function. This is The Rightly Designed Show. Okay, so the main thing I wanted to touch on today was the topic of a sidebar. So the first question to answer is, what is a sidebar? So a sidebar, in the context that I'm speaking of today, is on a website. You see these all the time, where you're on a blog and on the you've got your main content, typically on the left, sometimes on the right. And then on the uh, the opposite side of the content, you've got a narrower column, which is the sidebar. And the sidebar can be used for all sorts of different things. The latest posts, you know, a bio about the site or about the company, you know, list of categories, list of tags, and pretty much anything. A lot of times advertising will be over in the sidebar or a call to action of some sort. You know, subscribe to my newsletter, you go down the list. There's a lot of different things that can be in the sidebar. But the big question and one that a lot of people are asking about their website in today's day and age is, should I have a sidebar at all? It's becoming increasingly popular among many websites today to remove the sidebar altogether for a wide variety of reasons. Actually, over at RightlyDesigned.com, I decided a couple of versions of my website back, which I if you've followed my site for a while, you probably re- uh, recognize that I, I redesign it fairly often. But... One version back, I actually removed the sidebar completely, and now at the current version, I have continued that trend, and I don't have a sidebar uh, now either. And I decided to do that at the time because it was very important to me to make the reading experience of my site incredibly uh, clean and easy to read. So that was part of my thinking behind that. So I removed the sidebar just because I wanted to declutter the site and I wanted people to be able to focus in on the content. Also to have some calls to action, that sort of thing worked within. But my approach to removing the sidebar wasn't as much conversion related as it was just making the reader experience the best it could possibly be. Now, Brian Harris over at Video Fruit actually had an interesting... Um, there, his, his was a little bit more... Uh, his was more conversion 
space for his reasoning for removing the sidebar, but he actually went through a little bit more of a data-driven approach and had some interesting findings or, uh, from his site. So we wrote an article about it, which again, I'll link to in the show notes, but here's, what, uh, here's part of what it says. It says, how often do you click on a website sidebar? I'll tell you, 0.3% of the time. In other words, for every 1,000 people who come to your website, three people will click on the sidebar. Three. In case you were wondering, yes, that's really lousy. By comparison, 200 out of every 1,000 people who come to this blog post, and he's referring to the one he, he worked up, uh, the call to action and opted into my list. So that's 200 out of every 1,000 came to this blog post uh, to the call to action and opted into my list. So what would happen if you removed the sidebar and focused your reader's attention solely on the content instead? And so they decided to go through this exact... Uh, process. So you can check out the case study and all the different things that they went through in in terms of the specific design. In short, they had a sidebar with a call to action. They removed that sidebar altogether and instead made the call to action a little bit more prominent. And it, uh, it had some pretty significant results. So in short, what happened was the version with no sidebar, it says, produced 26% more email signups than the version with the sidebar. So again, they've got a lot of different data here. They went through some different split testing, so some A-B split testing, so you can actually see the numbers, how they break down uh, with a little bit more specificity than I'm giving you here. So you want to check that out for sure. Um, but it's an interesting concept. He went through and he took a very much a more data-driven approach and was more focused on conversions than anything else. So if conversions are really important to you, that's a very important piece to consider as well. Now me personally, I tend to, I, I do put some importance and significance on conversions. I mean, after all, you do want to achieve an end goal with with a website. You want to, you know, whether that's to collect email addresses or whether that's to, you know, get people to sign up for a list or to buy a product or to just, you know, build influence or whatever it is. You do want to accomplish those goals. But a lot of times when I'm building a website, I put as my priority the readability and the ease of use overall of the site. So and in this case, those ha- the those two goals happen to overlap. Uh, so you'll see this with a lot of new websites, no sidebar at all. So what I like to do uh, when it comes to determining whether or not to have a sidebar is, first of all, to consider what it, what is the actual content that you are going to be providing to your readers. So like, for example, um, I tend to shy away from the the arguments or the stance that, you know what, I did this case study and it showed that conversions or readability was better, so therefore websites should not have sidebars. I don't go along with that line of thinking. Typically what I do, I'm a little bit more pragmatic in my approach to when it comes to designing and developing a website. So if you're working you know, with a, a custom WordPress theme where you have the flexibility to you know, have this, the sidebar removed, or if you're working with a theme that enables you to remove the sidebar, or you know, try it on the right or try it on the left. My typical recommendation is just to try it out, number one. Number two is to put yourself in the user's shoes. And even better yet, try some actual A-B split testing or you know, try some experiments with your different readers that you can actually determine what is the best course to take. So as I mentioned, I don't really believe that there's a one-size-fit-all. I don't necessarily stand with, you know, it worked in this one case, therefore all blogs should remove their sidebars or all sites should remove their sidebars. One of the things that you need to take into account is, you know, what type of content are you going to be offering? And that's something that I'm going to be getting into a little bit later. But just something interesting uh, to, to take into account is to 
put yourself in the reader's shoes, put yourself in the user's shoes to find out what is the best possible course of action. Now, it is interesting to take away from this, of course, though. Um, there's a lot of, you know, from these different, from the data and from the tests that other people have done, there's a lot that we can learn. And we can see in this particular case, it works significantly better to remove the sidebar. So that is very interesting to take into account. Now, the question is, let's say you decide that you do want a sidebar on your site. Let's decide that you're like, you know what? I just have enough content um, that warrants a sidebar. I want to keep a sidebar. Uh, so then the next big question that a lot of people like to ask is, should I have a sidebar on the right or should I have one on the left? And this is a really interesting uh, point to consider. And it's a very important one. Now, there was actually a, another blog article I've, uh, I came across where uh, somebody with a, a pretty prominent and a pretty prominent blog with a fair amount of traffic actually went through and tested this on his own site. So he went through and he did a pretty in-depth analysis. So he got all the different visitors and all the different, um, you know, he got the page visits, the duration, the bounce rate. And here's, here was the result when he, he decided to A-B split test a left sidebar against a right sidebar. So a left sidebar had 2.35 uh, pages per visit. That means that if somebody visited the site, on average, they visited 2.35 pages before they left. Now, the right sidebar, with uh, you know when the sidebar is on the right, it was 2.39. So not a significant difference, but the right slightly slightly better. Visit duration, people spent on average 3 minutes and 56 seconds with the sidebar on the left four minutes even with the sidebar on the right. The bounce rate with the sidebar on the left was 60.76%. On the right, it was 61.42%. If you're not familiar with the term bounce rate, that just means the number of people who hit your site and immediately left. So didn't navigate anywhere, hit your site or hit a page on your site and then left. And then the goal conversion. So they were able to get, so they were trying to you know convert people into, I think it was just email leads. Um, but with the sidebar on the left, it was 7.88%, and on the right, it was 8.13%. So not too big of a difference overall you have in terms of the conversion rate, not even 1% increase with the sidebar on the right as opposed to the left. It is really interesting. If you're into data, I do recommend you check it out because they've, they've, they've got it broken down quite a bit more specifically than even I'm mentioning here. But when it comes to data and stats, as I mentioned previously, I tend to be a little bit more pragmatic. When it comes to like, for example, we're looking at less than a 1% increase between the left and the right. So if you're familiar at all with like polling, so public polling, they have what's called a margin of error. And so a margin of error is taken into consideration with, you know, things like the number of people who are being polled and the demographics of people who are being polled and all the different things that can calculate the accuracy of that poll, then, you know, factors into that margin of error. So, for example, if you had a fairly accurate poll, it would have maybe a margin of error of four, which means that whatever results were given, it could technically be off, you know, either for one part of the polling, it can swing up. 4% or it could swing down 4%. Uh, that's kind of the variation or the kind of volatility of that specific poll. The same type of thing applies to if you're doing like website tests because a small collection of data or samples that were drawn 
from, you know, and, and used as an example. It's only a microcosm and it's only a small sampling, not an exact representation of necessarily every visitor that you're going to receive. So from a data perspective, again, data can be really useful in times but when the differentiation between the two pieces of data, for example, in this instance, between the left and the right are so small or insignificant, there's not really a lot that we can take away from it. Now, that's not to say that you throw data out the window altogether and completely. There was an episode I had actually you know, done a while back that touched on a website sliders. And in that episode, I dived in specifically to a lot of different data points or that research that was done. And I was tending to rely more heavily upon that data, number one, because there was a lot of it. So there were tests that were done over and over and over and over again in various, uh, in a wide variety of environments. So, you know, one was on an educational site, one was on an e-commerce site, one was on more of a blog type site, and they all tended to draw the same conclusion, which was that the first slide was about anywhere from 70 to 90% of the clicks and all the other slides within that slider were pretty much ignored. So you're able to draw a pretty reasonable conclusion that the very functionality of a slider in most cases isn't even practical or useful at all. And you're better off just using a single uh, stationary image for a lot of different reasons. So there was a pretty reasonable, that was a pretty reasonable conclusion to draw from all that data. Now the data that I've been, you know, mentioning here where, you know, between the left sidebar and the right, it's pretty up in the air, meaning this one could go either way. This one barely tilted in the direction of the right sidebar, whereas the left. So there's a little bit, as I mentioned, it, it, it has a lot more to do with what specific content that you offer on your site when it comes to determining which type of layout that you should do. Now, sometimes it, uh, it can depend on the specific page that some, uh, some people are going to be landing on. Sometimes you may want, like for example, on Rightly Designed, I have like a full, I don't have a sidebar anywhere on the site. However, there's some pages that are laid out to be more of a paneled full width style. So you'll have, you know, when there's a lot of content to display in a specific area or a specific section or a specific panel, such as on like my welcome page, I'll have the content width be a little bit wider. So, you know, I can do columns that way. I can do testimonials or bigger pictures or images. Then when you get into an article, that reading area narrows dramatically. And, you know, that was done specifically because it's a lot easier for the eyes to read a page where the text is not stretched over a wide area. And so maybe in a future episode, I'll, I'll dive into good readability practices and things to consider on your website. And there's a lot of different small fine tuning that you can do to help just improve the overall reading experience. But I say that as an example to mention that a sidebar, whether you have one, whether it's on the right or as, whether it's on the left, can vary even within your own site. So for example, I mentioned previously a site that I've worked on personally, which is Notable Themes. Uh, Notable Themes actually is a hybrid. So it's got on the front page, it's got a very similar style in terms of, you know, a paneled overall content layout on the front page. But then it also has a blog, which, was re which I recently set up. And so the blog actually has a sidebar. So in addition to the community, 
uh, or I'm sorry, in addition to the blog, I've also built a community. So there's a place where people can go in there and they can, uh, so if they're a subscribe, what's called a notable care subscriber, they can jump in there. Users can uh, request features. So if there's a specific product that we've developed, you know, or a specific plugin or theme, they can request a, you know, a, a new feature. I've also got an area in there where people can jump in and request a new product altogether. So if they've got an idea for a plugin they'd want built or a new theme, they can go in there and they can enter all that information. So I'll probably cover that one as well in a future episode and building a community and, and making it a useful place for readers and for visitors. But the main point is that on that community and in the blog, there's a sidebar. And there is a specific reasoning for that because in those contexts, a sidebar made sense. Now on the product pages, there's actually more of a hybrid even within that. There's a, you know, there's a main feature image, there's a secondary feature image, a short description, some of the features of the theme or the plugin, and then a small sidebar next to some of the uh, listed out features uh, right there within the theme page. So again, context matters. And so if you're going to do a sidebar, it helps not only to consider the, the site as a whole or in general, but it's also good to consider the context of specific pages. What type of content are you displaying? How are you displaying it? And how can you make it the easiest for people to consume that content and to navigate throughout your site? So those things are all very important to consider. Okay, so you might be thinking, how then should I determine whether I should have a sidebar and if I have a sidebar, should it be on the left? Should it be on the right? How do I determine this type of thing? You know, not only site-wide, but in specific contexts throughout the site. And that's a very important question to ask. So what I like to do, as I mentioned a couple of times previously, is I like to be very pragmatic in my approach. So what I'll do is a lot of times I'll take a look at other sites out there. I'll take a look at like if I'm working on a site for a specific genre or a specific market that I am not personally very well acquainted with, I'll take a look at what uh, the other design and development decisions that people are making. I'll consider them and see if, you know, I need to implement something similar or maybe even an improvement of that. So, you know, like, for example, if you wanted to have a sidebar on the left or on the right, if you were questioning on that specific uh, part of, you know, the usability of your website, I would then again take a step back and consider context. For example, you know, like that site did try to do a study to determine, you know, some testing, some user testing to determine whether they should put it on the right, on the left. What I would do, I would, I take those things into account to some degree, but what I would do is consider more what makes sense. I need to put myself in the user's shoe. What makes sense? Now, English speaking human beings tend to read from left to right. That means that they're going to typically look at the top left and then scan over to the right. So if you are planning on putting your sidebar at the left, you have to take into account that that's probably where people are going to look first. They're going to look at that sidebar first, then they're going to, their eyes are going to move over to the right. So if the sidebar content that you're displaying is secondary in nature, then it's probably going to be best off to the right. This is why a lot of times you're going to see a sidebar off to the right on a news website or a blog or a more informational site where the sidebar, the sidebar is very much secondary in nature. Now, when is the circumstance when that sidebar is going to be on the left? You're going to see the sidebar on the left in things like web apps. So a lot of times, if you can think through, you know, some of the web apps that you have used where navigation or the sidebar is on the left, the reasoning for that is that that sidebar is very, it's actually very primary 
to the use of the page that you're on. It's very essential. It's it's necessary for the use of the page. So, for example, uh, you know, I've, I mentioned there's news websites. Well, then, uh, an example of one that would have a web a sidebar on the left is J.C. So, if you're not familiar with J.C. it's a clothing store. They've got retail locations, and then they also have an online shop. Now, on their online shop, the sidebar is on the left, which makes total sense. And this makes a lot of sense for a lot of e-commerce shops who have a very uh, important functionality built into their sidebar. So, for example, on jcpennies.com, you can go in there and you can you know, navigate to a specific category of their clothing or of the different products that they offer. On the left-hand side, you can filter between price, between color, between size, between season, between, you know, discount, on sale, this, right? They've got tons of different ways that you're able to go in there and actually, you know, narrow down what you're looking at uh, based upon all the different features and options that are in the sidebar. So that is a primary use. So that's, that is near essential most users are probably going to use at least one feature in that sidebar to navigate to an item that they're seeking, or even if they're just browsing, they may still be using that sidebar at least once to be able to find the item that's over in the main content area. So let's contrast that concept with a blog or a news site. So for example, a news website. Now, most people, when they visit a news website, are not entering that site through the front page. The New York Times, for example, did a uh, usability test several years back, and they determined that the overall traffic of the site has maintained steady, but they've seen a significant drop-off on the number of people visiting the front page. And the reason for this is because most people don't just visit their favorite news website. They get their news through social media. So they'll see it on uh, Facebook, or they'll see it on Twitter, or they'll see, you know, even on a blog, somebody else will comment on it on a blog article. And a lot of people are, are hitting these places through a link. So when they're hitting that page, their goal isn't necessarily to browse as it would be if you're over at jcpennies.com. The goal would be to read that content. So you're there to consume content. That sidebar, nine times out of 10 in that context is going to be off to the right. And the reasoning for that is because it's secondary in nature. There's nothing inherently needed on that sidebar to be able to read the content there within that article. So what you'll see a lot of times over in that sidebar is related stories or the latest stories or what's trending or trending topics or a lot of times ads. So that's a lot of what you're going to see uh, in in that sidebar. And then over on the the on the left-hand side, you're going to just have the content because, again, nine times out of ten, people are there for that content. They're not there for anything that they can find in that sidebar. So those are two very vastly different examples that you can consider when it comes to whether or not you have a sidebar. And if you have a sidebar, whether it goes on the left or whether it goes on the right, you can always keep in mind that if your sidebar, for whatever reason, serves a primary focus to what the to the page that somebody is currently on, you may want to consider having it on the left. If, however, it serves more of a secondary purpose, you may want to consider having it on the right. So again, there's not a whole lot of data I have offhand that really supports this. This is just from my own 
personal investigation and looking into these different things and just kind of knowing knowing that inherently people read from left to right. So those are some things to consider when you can uh, when you are deciding between left or right or whether you should have one at all. So then the next and really the final question to consider when it comes to a sidebar and if you have one and this is a pretty common question is what do I put on it? So for the JC Penney's example I used or the online shop example it's typically pretty clear that's going to that sidebar content is more functional in nature meaning it's manipulating the results that people are seeing live and so it's serving a specific pretty advanced navigation need so for a lot of people though a lot of people are either doing a blog or they're just doing you know a company website or a personal profile or something like that it doesn't really make sense to have a primary sidebar something that has that type of sophisticated navigation abilities. So in that case, you have to then consider again the question that I, you know, brought up rec- uh, previously which is putting yourself in the user's shoes, what would they want? What makes it easier and simpler for them? So what a lot of people will do in their sidebar is they'll place at the top right-hand corner since when it comes to a sidebar, the top right-hand corner, if they're going to view that sidebar at all, is going to be the first thing that they see. You can put like an email opt-in or some sort of, you know, content upgrade or something that can capture the email address. Uh, What I typically recommend staying away from, and this isn't in all circumstances, it really depends upon your site. If your site is only a blog, if that's its core function, I would tend to stay away from doing latest posts. So WordPress, for example, has the latest posts widget. I'll use this in some contexts. If that site, if that site isn't primarily a blog, then it makes sense to use latest posts. But if it is, it's kind of a waste of space because most people, if they want to see your latest posts, they're going to go to your front page or they're going to go to your main blog page. That's where they're going to go to see the latest posts. So I typically stay away from that. Instead, it's worth trying something like trending topics. Try something that's a little bit more dynamic and useful for people. So again, always if you're when it comes to determining how to display your content, always be putting in yourself in their shoes and not just defaulting to something that everybody else does. What really makes that more useful for people? So some of the things you can do is trending topics. So what you know, what different articles have been trending within the last, you know, 24 hours or within the last week. A lot of people find those really useful. And I know I click on those myself from time to time, uh, whether it's on different blogs or news sites. Another thing that you can do is you can list out key topics or categories. So if people want to be able to drill down into more specificity with the content that you can create, you can do that. Another thing you can do is, uh, which are becoming a little less prominent and used these days is tag clouds. WordPress again has this as well. So tags that you use that are pretty popular, you can feature those in the sidebar. You can also do my recommended posts. So this is all also a, a pretty good way to guide people with the content that you think they would find most relevant. So what you can do is you can hand select articles throughout your archive. So this is actually a good way as well to be able to kind of repurpose and recycle old content is to go through and hand select specific articles that you think will address topics or problems that are most prominent to your audience. So what you can do is you can uh, go through and hand select those, maybe pick like 10 of them and list those on your sidebar. Another thing that you can do is just pick popular ones. So this is different from trending topics. Trending topics is typically, you know, what's fresh, what's popular right now. 
Popular posts, on the other hand, show what has been popular over the lifetime of your site. So this can be really useful because it shows, you know, maybe I had an article that you wrote, you know, solid three or four years ago that was really relevant, but it's still relevant today. Well, you could have that show up amongst all the others that have been, again, popular over the lifetime of your site. So those are a lot of different ways that you can think through and consider and strategize to use that sidebar effectively. Another thing that you can do as well, which is really uh, popular, is to include links to your different social media networks. So, you know, rather than just showing an icon, you can say, you know, follow me on Twitter, like me on Facebook, connect with me on Instagram, you know, LinkedIn, Google+, YouTube, all the different things. You can also show in the sidebar, you know, your latest video. You can highlight specific types of content. So another thing to take into account, if you have specific types of content that you that you offer to people, you can draw that in through the sidebar as well. And just really think through uh, and strategize what would make that the most useful for your readers and to make that kind of the starting point when it comes to determining what to put in your sidebar and how to feature it. So as I mentioned previously, there's a lot of different to kind of wrap all of this up and to, you know, one final main point is that it all comes down to the context of the specific page or area of the site that you're currently on. You know, every different site is different. Everybody has a different audience and everybody, that's why there's no real cookie cutter one size fits all. That's why when someone comes along and says sidebars are dead, I just kind of roll my eyes and say, okay, sure. That's what you said about, you know, email marketing, you know, five, 10 years ago when social media started taking over, but yet everybody still uses, you know, email to sign up for social media and for all their marketing efforts. So again, there's never really a one size fits all solution. It's there's really just taking a strategic, thoughtful approach to how you lay out each, uh, each section and each element and each portion of your website, and just kind of planning accordingly. So I really do hope you found this useful. Um, as always, if you have a question, that you'd like answered, whatever it might be. So whether that's related to design, marketing, branding, or WordPress, or anything in between, feel free to head on over to rightlydesigned.com slash question. And I've got an area there where you can actually record a question for the show. So I'd be happy to take some time and to dig into that and to see if I can answer it in detail and at length. And if I need to, I'll even do a little bit of research beforehand. But I'm always happy to answer your questions. And that's also a big part of the Rightly Designed Show. Just want to make sure that the Rightly Designed Show stays as useful and as relevant as possible. And I want to continue to help in any way that I can. So I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen to the Rightly Designed Show today. And we'll see you next week. Enjoying the Rightly Designed Show? Please consider taking a quick moment to leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or the channel of your choice. Visit rightlydesigned.com show for links to these channels and more.